You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. Have you ever heard the name Frederick Douglass Patterson? If you haven't, I'm not surprised. Later in the program, we have Dark Past Bright Future, a Black History segment hosted by Liz Mitchell of our public affairs program, Bring It On. More in today's feature report. It is estimated that between 0.2% and 1% of cats will be diagnosed with diabetes during their lifetime. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between Lil Bub's Big Fund and WFHB. But first, your local headlines. At the Bloomington City Council meeting on May 5th, the council voted to approve an interlocal cooperation agreement between the city of Bloomington and Monroe County. The agreement would create a joint Bloomington and Monroe County Human Rights Commission. Bloomington Corporation Council Beth Kate shared the reasoning behind the joint commission. Uh, When we came before council earlier this year to amend the Bloomington Municipal Code and shift the Human Rights Commission from the legal department to the community and family resources department, we indicated then that we were in negotiations with the county to create a merged city-county human rights commission to better serve residents and to expand opportunities for public outreach and education, and that we would come back here once those negotiations were concluded. They are concluded and we're back. Uh, So I will be summarizing the resolution Uh, and the ordinance, I'll be back to do that as well, uh, that are before you tonight that are designed to create and empower and fund a new Bloomington-Monroe County Human Rights Commission. Kate explained more about what was included in the agreement with the county. She also said the agreement would at first be for a three-year term, which could then be evaluated and changed as needed. Resolution 2307, it's the first item for your consideration tonight on this effort. It approves an interlocal agreement between the city and the county, whereby effectively the city will staff the joint commission with the human rights director and a human rights administrative assistant, uh, plus legal support from uh, Audrey, as I mentioned, from an assistant city attorney. Uh, The joint commission with staff support will investigate and resolve discrimination complaints under both city and county codes. Uh, which are substantially the same. Uh, There are a few differences, but whichever code applies to a given complaint will be used. Uh, And the Joint Commission with staff support will conduct the public outreach and education efforts. Uh, Staff under this agreement will provide an annual report to the commissioners in February of each year starting in 2024 on the work of the Joint Commission. And the county will pay 
half of the salary and benefits of the human rights director and the uh, human rights administrative assistant uh, adjusted for the percentage of their time that is dedicated to human rights functions. So if that position is split with other duties, then the county is only paying for the half of the human rights function. And that's the formula that you see in the interlocal. The uh, initial term of this agreement is three years. We really don't know what the caseload of a joint commission is going to look like. We know what the caseloads of the respective city and county commissions look like right now, but we don't know what may happen, particularly with uh, perhaps increased cases coming out of the county with increased educational efforts and things like that. That's uh, some of the speculation that our county counterparts have been engaging in. So we made the initial term three years in order to give us some time to accrue some experience and then go ahead and evaluate that experience, and thereafter the interlocal can be renewed for five-year periods, and we can make whatever adjustments we need. The council voted unanimously to approve the agreement. The council also heard a similar ordinance to amend Title II of the Bloomington Municipal Code entitled Administration and Personnel. The amendment was to create the Joint City-County Human Rights Commission. Kate explained what the amendment would change. The changes to the code are minimal since the substance of the uh, work of the commission uh, will not be changing. Uh, really, as uh, Councilmember Piedmont-Smith rightly noted, the county and the city share the principles underlying the human rights ordinances. They're substantially similar ordinances. There are a few differences. Um, but uh, uh, the joint commission would be tasked with uh, applying the relevant uh, code provisions of either the city or the county code, depending on the nature of the matter before it. And um, uh, really, other than that, and to note that there was, uh, I think, one um, amendment that has been proposed to what you saw. I just want to call that out. So. Um, this uh, commission is a seven-member commission. That's what the city and the county each had going into this joint effort, and we did discuss uh, that, uh, and uh, as the um, uh, chamber noted, uh, it remains a seven-member commission that's uh, with agreement by the city and the county, uh, but spreading the appointments across the mayor and the common council and the county commissioners. So the mayor and the common council used to have four and three. Now they have three and two, and the remaining two are with the county commissioners. Um, as we were uh, going through and thinking about uh, the terms today, uh, we realized that actually a provision of the Bloomington Municipal Code uh, 2.080202 requires that for new commissions that are created after 2014, December 2014, the enabling legislation has to provide for a staggering of their terms, and that was not covered in what we had originally provided to you as the code changes. And so this amendment reflects a change uh, not only to uh, specify the two-year term, which would be the default position uh, anyway under the Bloomington Municipal Code but uh, and the county code, um, but it provides for that staggering explicitly so that we are in compliance with uh, 2.080202. Uh, so that's the nature of that amendment. The council approved that amendment unanimously. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will be on May 10th. On May 4th at the Monroe County Election Board, 
County Clerk Nicole Brown reported on the unofficial numbers from last Tuesday's primary election. And I just wanted to give you some numbers um, with the caveat that all numbers are unofficial until the provisional ballots have been reconciled on May 12th, 10 days after the election. So the unofficial information that I want to share with you is that there were 49,243 voters who were eligible to participate in the municipal primary. In some way, 8,314 voters participated. And again, unofficially, there were 3,203 voters who showed up in person to vote early. 19 voters requested travel board. There were 411 requests for mail ballots. And as of election evening, 42 of those ballots were not returned to us. Um, and then there were six emailed ballots. Those are for overseas and military and all six of those were returned. Um, so we, I don't believe we had very many provisional ballots. We won't know officially how many provisional ballots we had uh, until we reconcile those on the 12th. Um, this is an opportunity to thank all of the candidates who stood up and put their hat, name in the hat and congratulate those who were, who were successful. And I'd like to encourage those who were not to consider running uh, for future offices. Most importantly, um, I wanna thank our poll workers. I wanna thank my staff. I wanna thank my election board members and anyone else who helped us to put on what I consider to be a successful municipal primary. We are very grateful. We could not do this without you. Board member David Henry thanked the clerk's office for how the primary election went. Um, I just wanna say before we take the, the vote or the motion, um, I, publicly just thanking the clerk's office for uh, just a well-run election. Um, yeah, it was a, a nice, clean election we had, and I know that it's been anecdotally reported. I spent some time uh, digging through the clerk's binders and, and uh, records going back 50 years. But as I understand it, we, we had a record turnout in this municipal primary based on those numbers that have been presented uh, going back quite some time, especially in, at least from my party's uh, seat. Um, uh, more Democratic votes cast uh, or votes cast than I've, we've seen in a very long time in our community. And that's a testament to not just the campaigns, but the efficiency of the poll working, the throughput and getting people through at almost 350 votes an hour at the polling places on election day. And I just wanted the public to say thanks for that and uh, to our community for showing up and uh, continuing to show up. So thank you, Clerk Brown. The board then discussed how to prepare for the hearing of David Wolf Bender. They established their template for the hearing and County Legal Molly Turner King said she could look it over before the hearing. Such a hearing will be held at the next Monroe County Election Board meeting on May 18th at 1 p.m. Now it's time for Dark Past, Bright Future. 
a black history segment hosted by Liz Mitchell of Bring It On. We turn now to Mitchell. bright future. Lessons in African-American history that you won't read about in any textbook. Telling the stories of the struggle of those who came before us to build a better path to a brighter future for all of us. Good evening. This is a new edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. When you are driving your car, have you ever taken a moment to think about Have there ever been an African-American who built automobiles? I suppose, just like many of you today, that never gave it a second thought about who did this or who did that in this country. We just take everything for granted. Have you ever heard the name Frederick Douglass Patterson? If you haven't, I'm not surprised. Mr. Patterson lived from 1871 to 1932 and was the first African-American to build motorized cars. His father, Charles Richardson Patterson, a former enslaved person, created C.R. Patterson and Sons Company, located in Greenfield, Ohio. They began building fashionable carriages in 1865. And upon the death of his father, Frederick Patterson inherited the company and began building motorized vehicles. Frederick Douglass Patterson was the fourth of five children born to Josephine and Charles Richardson Patterson. And of course, you could tell that he was named after the abolitionist Frederick Douglass. In 1888, he attended Ohio State University where he played football and may have been the first black football player at the school on the varsity team. He left the university and taught school in Louisville, Kentucky for two years. The first Patterson automobile, named the Patterson Greenfield, rolled off the line on September 23, 1915. Unfortunately, Henry Ford debated his Model T on October 1st, 1908. And by that point, when the Greenfield Patterson car rolled off, the Model T had already captured the car buying market. The Patterson Greenfield automobile sold for $850 and was reputed to be a higher quality automobile than the Henry Ford's Model T, also known as the Tim Lizzie. The Patterson Greenfield car had a 40-horsepower Continental four-cylinder engine and reached a top speed of 50 miles per hour. Two factors hurt the sales of the Patterson Greenfield car. One was, as I mentioned before, it debated later than Henry Ford's Model T. And second, Henry Ford was able to sell his car for $825, $25 less than the Patterson Greenfield car. You might not think that was much, but back in those days, $25 was a lot of money. 
From 1915 to 1920, the Patterson-Greenville produced 150 vehicles of two styles, the two-door roaster and the four-door touring car. The company's slogan was, if it's a Patterson, it's a good one. By 1920, the company had shifted production to buses and trucks, and Patterson renamed the company to Greenfield Bus Body Company. But during the 1930s, competition from Detroit became increasingly more intense. So by 1939, the company had manufactured from its beginnings carriages, automobiles, buses, and trucks. The doors closed after 74 years of providing fine transportation. I would be remiss not to mention Garrett Morgan, who invented the three-way position traffic signal. Born in Kentucky in 1877, Garrett Morgan would go on to become one of the great African-American inventors of his time. By the 1920s, he had already had several inventions which allowed him success. Therefore, he was able to purchase an automobile, reportedly making him the first African-American in Cleveland, Ohio, to do so. He witnessed an accident that sparked an idea. Traffic signals had already been invented, but they consisted of two signals, stop and go. The problem was they needed a caution light, a yellow light. And to solve this problem, Morgan invented a T-shaped traffic signal that had a third light, the yellow caution light. On November 20th, 1923, Morgan was awarded a patent for the three-way position traffic light. And just so you know, he also invented an early version of the gas mask. And since we're talking about cars and traffic lights, let's talk about one of the country's great African-American race car drivers. Despite being barred from the Indianapolis 500, Charlie Wiggins became an expert mechanic in his native town of Evansville, Indiana. In 1922, he moved to Indianapolis and opened up his own shop and built a race car out of nothing but junkyard parts. He nicknamed his race car the Wiggins Special, and his dream was to drive in the Indianapolis 500. But as we all know, he was prevented from doing so because of the color of his skin. Nevertheless, undeterred, he and several other African-American drivers formed their own racing league called the Golden Glory, where Wiggins was nicknamed the Negro Speed King. In 1934, white race car driver, Bill Cummings hired Wiggins to tune his car for the Indianapolis 500 racing circuit. However, to do so, Wiggins posed as a driver or 
sorry, as a janitor in order to elude Jim Crow laws. Thanks to Wiggins, Cummins won the 500 race and set a new track record. This concludes this edition of Dark Past, Bright Future, and I hope you learned something this evening that you did not know before. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Next, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between Lil Bub's Big Fund and WFHB. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. Sugar is a very sweet cat, just over six years old, with medium length orange and white fur. He has diabetes and is very accepting of receiving his insulin every day. When his injections are done, he is usually after pets. To learn more about Sugar or to schedule to meet him, please reach out to the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, You can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. According to the Cornell Feline Health Center, Diabetes mellitus is a condition in which the body cannot properly produce or respond to the hormone insulin. This condition can be diagnosed in cats, just as with humans. It is estimated that between 0.2% and 1% of cats will be diagnosed with diabetes during their lifetime. The most important risk factors identified for the development of diabetes in cats include obesity, increasing age, physical inactivity, male sex, and the use of steroids to treat other illnesses such as feline asthma. Obese cats are up to four times more likely to develop diabetes than ideal weight cats. So the most important thing a cat owner can do to decrease their risk of developing diabetes is to maintain a healthy weight and encourage physical activity through daily play. 
The two most common signs of diabetes noticed by owners at home are weight loss, despite a good appetite, and increased thirst in urination. A veterinarian can diagnose diabetes by demonstrating persistently elevated glucose levels in a cat's blood and urine. This testing, along with consistent clinical signs, will lead to the diagnosis of diabetes. The main goals of treatment for feline diabetes are to restore normal blood glucose concentrations, control weight loss, restore normal thirst and urination, and avoid hypoglycemia from treatment. These goals are best achieved through a combination of insulin and dietary therapy. Close monitoring by both the owner and the veterinarian is essential for a diabetic cat. Regular monitoring will help determine the ideal insulin dose and avoid complications. Regular assessments of weight, water intake, and appetite should be recorded to help determine if treatment goals are being met. Although there is no cure for feline diabetes, the prognosis for a good quality life is good with adequate management at home. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB, produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Lil Bub's Lil Show is produced by Christine Brackenoff and Stacy Brodowski. Dark Past Bright Future is produced by Liz Mitchell. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Spectrum, a show about the fascinating world of science and technology, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 